Today on Blue 58, it's time to start a review of every Packers player from 2020. First up are the quarterbacks. Did the Packers have any noteworthy storylines there last year? I think we can all agree that the answer is yes, which is why it's time for 45 minutes of discussion about Tim Boyle. Blue 58! Hello and welcome to another episode of Blue 58, the one and only podcast of thepowersweep.com. I'm your host, John Meerdink. Very happy to be with you here for another episode. It is time to start going player by player through the 2020 Packers season. We're actually a little bit late on this, a little bit later than I prepared, planned to do this because there's been a little bit of news over the past couple weeks concerning the Packers and their various coordinators coming and going. But now it is time to take a look at the players we saw on and off the field in 2020. How we're going to do this is we're going to restrict it with a couple of exceptions to guys who took snaps for the Packers in 2020. A couple of those exceptions we will get to today. Well, at least one. One in particular, and we might as well jump right in. It is Jordan Love. He did not play a single snap for the Packers in 2020. His outlook for 2021 is a little bit murky. Not in that I think there's serious consideration that he wouldn't be on the roster or anything like that. More because we just don't know what to expect from him. We have not seen Jordan Love play a football game since the fall, basically, of 2019. By the time he gets to preseason this year, assuming that they play preseason games this year, and that seems like a fair assumption, it is going to have been almost two years since he played a meaningful snap of football. That's wild. And my objections to the Jordan Love pick itself aside, I can't help but feeling a little bit bad for the guy. Because no matter what you think of the Packers' decision to draft him, what you can't really do is get mad at Jordan Love, can you? I don't think so. I don't think anybody really is. But I, I, when I think about where he is in his career right now, I can't help but feeling a little bit sorry for him. He was one pick in, in well, I guess one small decision from being in a situation where he could have competed somewhere for starters reps in 2020. There are a number of people throughout the league that think he was one of the better prospects in the 2020 draft. I don't know if I agree with them, but there were people out there and all it takes is one. He didn't have that shot in 2020 and he may not ever get it. He may not ever really get a real shot to compete for a starting job. Not in the near term, at least. And now he's got all these additional expectations on him. It's tough enough to come into the NFL as a rookie. It's tough enough to come into the NFL as a rookie quarterback. It's tough enough to come into the NFL as a rookie quarterback who has designs on starting someday. But to be a rookie quarterback coming into the NFL who is expected to answer for his GM's decision to draft him in the first place when they've got a first ballot Hall of Famer ahead of him, and then ultimately, in theory, be tasked with replacing that Hall of Famer, that's a pretty tough hand. And look, you're supposed to be a competitor and you're supposed to want challenges and things like that. And he may, but how stacked against yourself do you want the deck to be? Even if Jordan Love is a great prospect, even if he is as good as Brian Gutekunst and the Packers seem to think that he is, 
the bar for success for him is almost impossibly high. And you don't have to look too far for a sizable portion of the Packers fan base that still prefers Brett Favre to Aaron Rodgers. There are vocal people out there who think it's not even close comparing Favre to Rodgers. And look how good Aaron Rodgers has been. Without even wading into that discussion, just look. I think everyone would agree that Aaron Rodgers has been pretty good in his time as the Packers' starting quarterback. But even as good as he's been, there's people who would still take Brett Favre, the balance of his entire career over the balance of Aaron Rodgers' entire career. That is an insanely high bar. And Jordan Love is going to face that kind of thing if he ever gets a chance to be the starting quarterback in Green Bay. That's wild, and I can't help but feel a little bit bad for him. Fortunately, I guess if he stays in Green Bay, he is probably not going to have to compete to be a starter in 2021. But he has a real shot to be the number two. How real a shot he gets depends a little bit on what the Packers decide to do with the next quarterback up, Tim Boyle. Tim Boyle played zero meaningful snaps in 2020. He had a bunch of kneel downs, one sack, and that's it. He is a restricted free agent this offseason. He's probably going to get the lowest tender. I expect him to stay in Green Bay unless they go extreme cost-cutting. It seems like he's going to be cheap to keep under that tenure, or tender. It's going to be in the low single-digit millions, I think maybe even just $1 million. I had all that information at one point, and then it just fell right out of my head. Basically, though, it seems like there's no downside to keeping him, and Really, very little upside to letting him go. Keep him. You have him. You can always cut him later. It'll cost you practically nothing. If you let him go, you just got to get another version of Tim Boyle. I don't think the Packers are ready to ride into 2021 with Aaron Rodgers, Jordan Love, and nobody else. Because you're probably going to end up with a practice squad arm at that point just so you have a third quarterback around. It just seems like the Packers will probably go with Boyle and Love at least through training camp, see what they've got, see if Love gets some actual game reps in preseason this year, and then go from there. Maybe a release boil at the end of training camp if you really decide you want to move on and you've got a live arm in camp that you, you want to keep around as a practice squad guy. But really, if they made it through all of last season with three quarterbacks, and if the, if the practice squad rosters stay expanded, heck, keep boil and Love and another guy on a 16-person practice squad. You never know. So there's your backups. What about Aaron Rodgers? I don't honestly know how you even assess his 2020 season. It was really good. He won the MVP, and he deserved it. And there's really no reason to think that he can't be just as good as he was in 2020 in 2021. I think throughout the league, you're going to see some adjustment to the Packers' scheme, And we've seen from the Buccaneers that it is beatable, but you need quite a bit to beat it. And the Packers still put up 24 points on them, or however many it was, 25, and could have been more had they not dropped passes in the end zone and all of the other things that happened there. So there is going to be some scheme adjustment, but it's still a a difficult scheme to stop. Even if teams do adjust to it, Matt LaFleur has been pretty adaptive in his time in Green Bay. They're going to find other ways to move the ball. And quarterback aging curves are pretty steady until they completely fall apart. 
And there's really little evidence that he's going to fall completely apart. So I think 2021, the outlook looks pretty good for Aaron Rodgers being basically what he was in 2020. So what do we even talk about with Aaron Rodgers? Well, let's just get crazy. What if the Packers traded Aaron Rodgers? I don't just come to this out of the blue. Rudy, the good question asker, dropped this into my inbox today, and I haven't been able to stop thinking about it. Rudy says this, thought experiment. How can we gauge the potential trade value of a player? So, for instance, if Matthew Stafford just averaged uh, or netted an average starting quarterback in Jared Goff, two first-round picks and a third-round pick, what is Aaron Rodgers worth? His stock will never be higher after this last year, and I'm of the belief that there is no such thing as an untradeable player. So what's the trade threshold where we say that it's worth it? Is it five first-round picks? Six? Seven? This is a good question, which is why I always call Rudy the good question asker, because we get good questions from Rudy all the time. So here is my attempt to answer that question. First and foremost, what is Aaron Rodgers worth? What if the Packers wanted to trade Aaron Rodgers? What if somebody out there is like, we need to have Aaron Rodgers. We think they're ready to move on. What can we trade that will allow the Packers to feel good about moving on? Because I think like Rudy says, there is no such thing as an untradeable player. Sure, contracts make it really difficult, but contract stuff notwithstanding, there is nobody in the NFL who is untouchable. There is nobody in any sport who's untouchable, which is why it's always funny when a team, it's usually an NBA team, comes out and says, you know, for the right price, and this is like, teams don't actually say this, but you'll see people in the know, people who are reporters, people who have connections to front office say, you know, sources have said that so-and-so could be available to trade for the right price. Well, no kidding. Everything's available for the right price. It's one of my favorite scenes in the uh, in the first Christopher Nolan Batman movie, Batman Begins, is uh, Alfred's advice to Bruce Wayne slash Batman is, you want to cultivate this persona, just buy things that aren't for sale. Because if you have enough money, everything is for sale. Every player is available. It's just a question of price. So what is that price for Aaron Rodgers? First, the caveat Like we've hinted at, and like Rudy says, the Packers are not trading Aaron Rodgers. It's not going to happen. This is a thought experiment. And even if they wanted to, even if the Packers wanted to right now, if Brian Gutekunst woke up tomorrow or had a bad dream in the middle of the night and woke up tonight and said, hey, I need to trade Aaron Rodgers. I've just received a sign from the Lord that says we need to move Aaron Rodgers right now or things are going to get bad for us. It would be very, very difficult for them to do so because of the reality of the salary cap. Bonuses accelerating and stuff like that means Aaron Rodgers' cap number is just so big that it's wildly impractical to even think about as anything other than a thought experiment. But if the Packers had the ability to do it, what would Aaron Rodgers fetch? I think to get that answer, you have to consider what you're trading if you trade Aaron Rodgers. What are you trading for? You're getting a great player, yes. But on top of getting a great player, you get prestige. We have Aaron Rodgers. We are contenders now. We mean business. That's something you can sell to your fan base. That's something you can sell to your team. Not wading into the the GOAT discussion, because I hate it and it's stupid, but 
the presence of Tom Brady on the Tampa Bay Buccaneers this year changed the mindset of the team. And you have to believe there would be something similar if a quarterback the stature of Aaron Rodgers suddenly arrived in Jacksonville. Just picking a name out of my out of a hat. Say Aaron Rodgers is now the starting quarterback of his boyhood favorite team, the San Francisco 49ers. Do you think the 49ers feel better about themselves now than they did at the end of last season? I think they probably do. You also get related benefits. As as a franchise, you get a lot of money through merchandise, ticket sales, playoff revenue, a lot of related money from marketing. So when you're trading for somebody like Aaron Rodgers, you're trading for less of a player and more something like a luxury good. There's only one Aaron Rodgers, and there are only two or three players in the NFL who are like Aaron Rodgers. Who is in the category of true franchise-altering quarterbacks? It's a pretty short list in the NFL, and it always is. There's just not that many players that are like an Aaron Rodgers. So it's less what is he worth and more what is something that someone is willing to pay and what would the Packers be willing to accept. So what might someone be willing to pay or what should the Packers be looking for in this theoretical situation where they want to trade Aaron Rodgers? I think to answer that question, we've got to look at the Jimmy Johnson trade value chart. So this is something that teams use throughout the NFL to trade draft picks. Every pick Every pick is assigned a value. For example, the first overall pick is worth 3,000 points, and things count down from there until you get to the end of the first round, and the 32nd overall pick is worth 590 points, and it goes down from there until you're getting to single digits or even fractional points very late in the draft. And there are people who like different models and different uh, valuations of picks, but this is pretty much the league standard. Uh, It's widely regarded, at least if not the best, it's the first way of valuing these picks. On average, a top 10 pick on the Johnson draft chart is worth 1,800 points. The average of a the last 10 picks in the first round is worth 680 points. So let's look at the Jared Goff-Matthew Stafford trade. The Rams gave up Goff, two first-round picks, and a third-round pick. What is that worth? Assuming that the Rams are going to be contenders for the next couple of years, Detroit is probably going to get late first-round picks. And the average value of a late first-round pick, a late, late meaning the last 10 picks in the draft, is 680 points. A third-round pick, assuming that is also late, is going to be worth around 200 points. And then you get to Jared Goff. What is Jared Goff worth? Well, I kind of ballparked this one, but... Jimmy Garoppolo was traded for the 43rd overall pick, and I think Jared Goff is probably regarded a little bit worse than Garoppolo was at the time he was traded from the Patriots to the 49ers. So I said he was probably worth around 400 points, and that's ballparking it, but that's the smallest part of this trade, or that is the least important part of this trade, because I don't think the Lions are interested in Goff so much as the draft picks. But Between Goff and the first-round picks and the third-round pick, that gets us to 1,960 total points on Jimmy Johnson's trade value chart. So if that's what Matthew Stafford gets you, what does Aaron Rodgers get you? you? I think conservatively, it's not all that out of the realm of possibility to assume that Aaron Rodgers could get you double what you got for Matthew Stafford. 
Sure, Aaron Rodgers is older, but he's significantly better. He's been more productive. Sure, he's had probably more talent around him, or at least more stable coaching. But I think it's not that big of a stretch to say Aaron Rodgers is better than Matthew Stafford and probably more valuable in, in a trade as a result. So if Aaron Rodgers is worth double what Stafford was, you're looking to get around two thousand or four thousand points, excuse me, of total draft value. So this is where we can start doing some math. If you trade him to a contender, you're trading for as a starting point. What do you think are going to be late first round picks? And a late first round pick, last ten picks in the draft, is worth on average six hundred and eighty points. So five late first round picks would be worth thirty four hundred points. A late second round pick is worth roughly 300 points. So if you just wanted to get 4,000 points of draft capital for Aaron Rodgers, you could trade him today for five first round picks in the late first round and two late second round picks. Boom, there you go. You are set for the next five years. Two first round picks every year for the next five years. And two second-round picks every year for the next two years, that's not too bad. Five first, two seconds. But I think if you're the Packers and you're moving on from Aaron Rodgers, you want to accelerate your return. You want to get your capital as quickly as you can. So not just first-round picks for the next five years. I want more picks sooner. So... I want multiple picks this year. I want multiple picks next year. And then throw in a couple firsts after that. Give me a late first round pick this year, as well as your second and third round picks. A late first round pick next year, as well as your second and third round picks. And then a late first round pick in 2023 and a late first round pick in 2024. That package all together is worth 3,980 points on the Jimmy Johnson draft value trade chart, just under the 4,000-point threshold that we're talking about. So if you're looking for a package that is worth twice what the Lions got for Matthew Stafford, you could go for that five first two seconds, but I think If you're trading a player like Aaron Rodgers, you want to get your rewards as quickly as possible. So you want as much of that value to come early in the life cycle of those picks. Because if you're the GM trading Aaron Rodgers, you want to get your return quickly. So give me six picks in the next two years and then throw in two first after that. Give me a one, two, three this year, a one, two, three next year, a first the year after that, and a first the year after that. Four firsts. Two seconds, two-thirds for Aaron Rodgers. That's my offer to Brian Gutekunst. We'll see if we can get Aaron Rodgers to join the power sweep this offseason. Finally, to wrap it up today, we got a good question via our Discord server. Patrick Schneider asks, not necessarily Packer-specific, but something I always wonder about during coaching changes. When a new coach comes in, it seems there is always a discussion around how that coach can impact or reduce penalties called on their unit. I tend to view penalties as more a player problem than a coaching problem. So does changing coaches really have much of an impact on the number or type of penalties a player or unit will get called for? If so, why wasn't the previous coach 
teaching technique in the less penalized way? I think this is a good question, and we do have some data we can throw at this one. First of all, there is some data that suggests that penalty is um, penalties are a factor of coaching. I was not able to dig up the source on this again, but it's something we've talked about in the past. There is some research that suggests that of all the factors that are out there, ENA coaches control penalties are one of the things they can really control the most. And there's a variety of reasons for that. What scheme are you running? Does that make you more or less susceptible to penalties? How are you holding players accountable for their actions on the field? How does what you're doing differ from what your predecessor does? If you are just tightening up the ship a little bit, chances are penalties are going to go down. But we can see this play out, and we can see it play out on the Packers themselves. There is actually a recent instance of coaching apparently making an impact on penalties. From 2015 to 2020, the Packers had two special teams coordinators. Ron Zook ran the show from 2015 to 2018, and Sean Manega ran the show from 2019 to 2020. Under Zook, the Packers racked up a lot of penalties on, on special teams. In 2015, they were penalized 22 times. The next season, it was 18. In 2017, it was 23. And in 2018, they were up to 26 penalties. I think six to eight of those were on Josh Jones all by himself. But then Sean Menenga shows up on the, ski, on the scene. And one thing he says on his way into Green Bay, his introductory press conference is, guys are going to know the rules. We're going to cut down penalties. And he did. In 2019, they had 13 penalties, and then this past season, they were down to six. The first time in more than a half decade, the Packers have had single-digit special teams penalties. Sean Menenga, among his many faults, said he was going to cut down penalties, and he did. The Packers were bottom five in the NFL in special team penalties both years he ran the show. He did a good job of cutting down penalties. He did a bad job at everything else, but he did a good job of cutting down penalties. But as to the second part of the question that Patrick asks here, why the previous coach wasn't coaching in the less penalized way? I don't have a firm answer on this, but I got a couple of theories. First, coaches have different views on and methods of enforcing accountability. So a big part of being a coach is holding people responsible for their mistakes. Hey, we said we were going to do this. You went out on the field and then this. Here is the consequence of that action. You are not going to play anymore. We're going to move you to a different unit. We're going to bench you. You're going to be inactive on Sundays. We're going to cut you. How you mete out those punishments or those consequences for poor play or poor execution is a big part of coaching. And it's possible that Menenga may just have been better at enforcing the things he said he was going to do regarding penalties than Zook was. He just may have run a tighter ship for whatever reason. Secondly, discipline of somebody's unit, whether that's offense, defense, or special teams, is one of the main indicators of coaching ability, especially on special teams. I think this is true. Special teams is ultimately, in large part, just an organizational problem, a question of organization. So you've got Kickoff, kick return, punt, punt return, field goal, field goal block. Six units you've got to organize. 
and you're going to organize most of those units with backup players, the third stringers, the bottom of your roster. It's not really clear who you're going to have available on a week-in, week-out basis. So you got to be organized. And if you're not organized, you're going to have a lot of unforced errors. And avoiding unforced errors is coaching 101. If you can't get out of your own way, you're probably going to get penalized a lot. And teams that get penalized a lot probably don't have very good coaches because they're probably not very organized. And I think this may be, I, I don't know how we would prove this, but I, I think this may be just a, a, a bit of a bind the Packers put their special teams coordinators in. Historically, they have relied very much, very, very much on undrafted free agents to fill out their roster, which is fine, but those players aren't very experienced and they tend to make stupid mistakes. And stupid mistakes lead to penalties. So you're putting an already a, a, a heavier burden on an already heavily burdened coach. You're asking them to not only organize these units where guys are coming in and out of the lineup all the time, but you're asking them to do that with guys that have never been in the NFL before and weren't good enough to get drafted. Good luck. Good luck. Finally... And this is the most nebulous of all, but coaches just have different ways of communicating exactly what they want. Maybe Ron Zook was teaching guys the less penalized way of playing special teams, but he just couldn't communicate it very well. Maybe he was just not a very good coach and couldn't teach people exactly what he wanted them to do, at least in terms of avoiding penalties. Sean Menango was not very good at coaching the things related to getting teams to stop you from getting teams to stop running all over them in the various return games. But he did do a good job, it seems, of coaching them on how to avoid penalties. And they were able to do that one small thing during the Sean Menenga era. So I've got for you on this episode, but before we go, wanted to remind you about our, our Patreon and the benefits there. We just answered a question from Patrick via Discord, and that is one of the primary benefits of joining our Patreon team. Patreon.com slash ThePowerSweep. Uh, donate there whatever amount you please, and you will have access to that server, among other benefits. You get bonus content. You get twenty percent or 25% off lifetime uh, in our Teespring store. So if you want to support the Power Sweep, wear some cool Power Sweep merchandise. Might as well get yourself a 25% off while you do it. Get access to bonus content and get into our Discord server as well. It's a fun time. We've had a really good time in the in the time we've had this available, and I'm really grateful for everybody who chooses to support us that way. In the meantime, best way you can support the show is just continuing to spread it, share it. If there's someone you think would enjoy hearing it, go ahead and tell them about it because that's going to help more people find the show and ultimately help us accomplish our goal of helping more people become smarter Packers fans, me included, because, as I always say, smarter Packers fans are better Packers fans, and better Packers fans are what we all want to be. I'm your host, John Meerdink. We'll see you next time on Blue 58.